Thanks, Malcolm, and to your whole team for leading us today. It was awesome. It's good to see you all. My name's Tom. I have a privilege to bring the message today. Hey, in, in the comedy movie uh, Talladega Nights, which probably none of you have seen, uh, uh, the professional race car driver, uh, Ricky Bobby, has a tremendous crash. And while he's rescued miraculously out of the crash, unharmed, he thinks he's on fire. And so he takes off running up and down the track, trying to get the fire out. Of course, he's not actually on fire. But as he runs, he prays. And he prays fervently. But because he isn't really sure who he should pray to, he just throws up prayers to everyone he can think of in his moment of need. Running up and down the track, by now in his underwear, as only Will Ferrell can do, he he cries out, Help me, Jesus! And then, Help me, Jewish God! Help me, Allah! And then he really branches out, Help me, Tom Cruise! Use your witchcraft on me to put this fire out, he says. And then the final clincher at the end, Help me, Oprah Winfrey. I mean, in a world where there are just so many options, he wanted to make sure all of his bases were covered. Well, we are into our fall series looking at various obstacles of faith, things that seem to come up, maybe in conversation, maybe on your own journey, obstacles that can keep you or your friends, your family, from really finding out more about who Jesus is. And so we've been exploring a variety of obstacles. We kicked off the series um, after kind of an introduction. We kicked off the series looking at how uh, the idea that science makes faith stupid or science has made faith irrelevant or that there's a conflict going on between science and faith. That's what we kicked it off with. Then we looked at the obstacle that some people can have that religion does more harm than good. We explored that together. Last week we looked at the common obstacle that you'll run into nowadays that Christians are homophobic haters. Our goal for this series is very simple. We want to help you get over some of those obstacles or get around some of those obstacles or at least get enough of an idea how to grapple with this obstacle so that you can then interact with, find out more, discover more about who Jesus is. And that may be where you are personally. But we also want to help you have better conversations with others, with your friends and family who may themselves have some obstacle that prevents them from ever exploring who Jesus is really is. That's the goal for our series. Today's obstacle is actually pretty, pretty stark. It's pretty out there. It's best captured in a simple interaction between Jesus and his disciples. Shortly before his betrayal and crucifixion, Jesus told his disciples that he was going away. He was going away to prepare a place for them, he said. But someday he would return to get them so that they could be with him forever. And he assured them that they knew the way to where he was going. He said, you know the way to where I am going. Except they didn't. Or at least they didn't think so. No, Thomas said, we don't know, Lord. We have no idea where you're going. So how could we know the way? Jesus told them, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would, have, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus replied, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, yet you still don't know who I am? 
Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. There it is. Jesus, in no uncertain terms, identifies himself as the way, the truth, and the life. Not just a possible way, not just one of the possible truths, not you know, one version of the life that's available, but the definitive, exclusive, unique, one and only way to come to the Father and to know who God truly is. And that conviction that Jesus is the only way that we can know God can be a huge obstacle for people to even discover who Jesus is, to even get to first base and, and, and learn about him. The obstacle you hear might be expressed in a variety of ways. It might not be expressed that starkly. It might be that people feel like, you know, anyone who claims to have the only track on God, that just sounds arrogant. It sounds, you know, like something you want to push away from. A claim to exclusivity like this can, can seem unfair to people who've never heard about Jesus. And, you know, who are you to say that you're right anyway? You might hear, like, people say, you know, we know so much more about different religions and different perspectives now, this increasingly pluralized world. I mean, are you really expecting me to believe that your religion got it right? Really? And even if that were true, then what hope is there for peace? I mean, isn't it exclusive truth claims that have brought so much trouble to the world anyway? We can hear that. I want us to feel the weight of that because I think that's a real real concern that people carry. Anyone who claims to have the truth can, can cause a lot of hurt, a lot of problems. You can see that in the news. You can see that among friends. And maybe they've experienced that at the hands of others who claim to know the truth. But this idea that it's only through Jesus can cause some pushback. 18th century philosopher Jean-Jacques, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he said he couldn't understand why. If God had something to say to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, why in the world did he have to go through Moses or Jesus to do it? He's not alone in that. Because exclusivity, claiming that Jesus is the only way, it can feel intolerant. It can feel arrogant. Can I say it? It can feel really un-Canadian. You know? It can rankle our sensitivities. It can rile up even some deep emotions about diversity. And yet, it's exactly what Christians have been saying about Jesus for 2,000 years. Christianity was born in a very pluralist world where there were many, many, many options available to people. Sometimes we think that we are the first ones to have discovered a very pluralized world where we interact with people of different faiths every day. But that's not true. That's where Christianity was born. Christians have always pointed to Jesus as the definitive revelation of who God is. That he, as the divine son of God, became a human being for us. That this Jesus, this particular Jewish man, about 30 years old, born in this place at this time, speaking this language, that he was 100% God and 100% human. And that it's only because of him and only through him that all of creation can be restored to right relationship with God. That we, as people, can discover who God is. This exclusive truth claim that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, it can sometimes be pushed back on by at least two kind of common objections. I mean, they're expressed in a variety of ways, but they kind of come down to two basic objections. We can either hear the objection that Jesus can't be the only way because there is no way to God. In other words, all religions are equally false. Or we can hear the objection that 
Jesus can't be the only way because there are many different ways to God. That is, all religions are equally true. We'll hear them in both ways. Let's take them each in turn. As I do, my desire this morning is to help us think clearly. I realize that for some of you, these may be objections that you yourself struggle with. I really get that. I also realize that as we interact with other people, how we interact around these objections, we're going to take into, into stock all the things we've been talking about, about hearing people and understanding where they're coming from, what's going on. But my, my desire here in the next few minutes is that we would be able to think more clearly about these two objections, maybe to stimulate our own thinking and hopefully to stimulate our conversation. So first, the claim that all religions are equally false, equally wrong, that there are, in fact, no paths to God, and all religions ultimately lead to a dead end. It's a really clear objection. It's actually an explicit rejection of any claim that God is noble, and frankly, any claim that there is a God, but certainly that God is noble or available or present in any discernible way by any group or any religion or any perspective at all. This often comes from an atheistic viewpoint. That's not a big surprise. But it can also come from an agnostic viewpoint that just says, hey, we can't know. The conclusion, though, is the same. That any claim to know the truth, that there is a path to God, that there is a way to know God, is rejected just out of hand. That not only are those paths not available, they don't lead us to God, but usually those who would argue this will also say, not only does it not lead anywhere, it in fact, it cripples us. It keeps us as people in bondage. It brings oppression and violence to the world. Christopher Hitchens, who has since died, wrote that religion poisons everything. And then he goes on to tell how every religion, every system, every theologian, every devout believer who has lived, does live, or will ever live, is wrong. In fact, he gets very strong about it. Wrong, foolish. He even says infantile in their thinking. It's quite a claim when you think about how many people believe that. As you can see, the truth claim that all religions are equally false brings us really close to the, the obstacle of faith we already addressed a few weeks ago, the, the, the obstacle that religion does more harm than good. And if you haven't heard that, I encourage you to listen to that, that talk because it really covers that base, I think, fairly well. It's available on our website and through iTunes. In the context of today's obstacle, the objection that all religions are equally false, all religions lead nowhere, the evidence that religions do more harm than good, and the good is almost never acknowledged, the good that religion has done is almost never acknowledged uh, by some of the strong uh, opponents of this view. But they use the evidence that religion does more harm than good as a way of kind of piling up support for their larger claim that all religions are false and that the proof of that is in the historical uh, pudding. And some of these claims are made by very powerful orators, very great writers, uh, people, very convincing personality, very, uh, you know, they really are, are, are persuasive. Um, we'll also sometimes hear it from others who will just cynically dismiss all and any attempt to describe or relay some kind of spiritual experience or, or some kind of way to understand or access God. How do we respond to that? The fact is, the argument that all religions are false can sound very wise, very convincing. read some articles this week on it. These are, these are powerful arguments, telling powerful stories. In fact, there might even be times where we're tempted to say, yeah, I get that. Like, I mean, uh, uh, who am I to say? But ultimately, this truth claim that is made is self-defeating. What do I mean by self-defeating? 
Well, when a person says that all claims to ultimate truth are false, they're making an ultimate truth claim. Follow with me here. What they're saying is this. All exclusive truth claims are false, except for the one that I'm making. The exclusive truth claim that all truth claims are false. Are you following with me here? So, all truth claims are wrong, except the one I'm making, which happens to be an exclusive truth claim. You see the promise here? They want their sushi, and they want to eat it too. Sushi's so beautiful on the plate, isn't it? But man, it deserves to be eaten. So they want to be able to denounce all claims to know who God is or who God isn't or how to get to know him or the fact that he's not knowable at all or all this. They want to denounce all of that. They call it all bunk. But they themselves aren't always open to the obvious question. How do you get off making that claim? I mean, what superior vantage point do you stand on that is able to evaluate all of these religions, a vantage point that no one else has. How is it that you know what no one else knows? Are you saying that you're the only one who's right? A very tiny fraction of people in all the history of time, that you are the one who's right and everyone else is wrong. You can see it's a bit of a problem. It's a, it's a hard thing to follow through on. Furthermore, as we said in our message on religion, doing more harm than good, where we acknowledge the reality of times when religion did do more harm good and times when religion did more good than harm, the diversity of religions are not the cause of much of the heartache in the world. In fact, in the 20th century, more lives were lost. By far, far, far more lives were lost because of atheistic worldviews that ruled out heaven and then rained down hell. John Lennon might have dreamed of a world with no religion. We don't have to dream of it. We know exactly what it looks like. It's nasty. Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot showed us exactly what it's like. The claim that all religions are false, it just can't be supported. And I say that with as much gentleness as I can muster. It can't be supported logically. can't be supported historically. It's a massive overreach, and I hope that even as we engage in conversations around that, we'll be able to gently bring that question up. But what about the opposite claim? The one that I think maybe we hear a bit more, at least in popular conversation with friends and family. The claim that all religions are equally right or equally true. It's a very popular view. The idea that the world is filled with so many different religions, so many different philosophies, so many different ideas about who God is, believed by people who are good people. Ideas about how God can be experienced. Are we really willing to just say that only one way is right? I mean, don't all paths, or at least many paths, lead to God? The patron saint of all things pop, Oprah Winfrey herself, said, quote, one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe that there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to God. Now, she doesn't define which God she's referring to, which I always think is an apt question. Path to what God? But she doesn't ask that, answer that question. They often don't define which God they're referring to, but the idea that there are many paths to God. A popular story to explain this is the story of four blind men and an elephant. Have you ever heard this story? Anyone? Hands up. Who's heard this story? A few of you. Well, here's how it goes. Four blind men come upon a sleeping, or in this picture, standing elephant, very patient one, I might add. Wondering what it is, one blind man man touches its side and says, it's a massive boulder. 
It's bumpy, but it's smooth. Huge thing. But one of the other blind men objects, having grabbed a hold of the trunk. No, no. It's like a huge rope, he says. Thick and strong. Yet another of the blind men had fastened upon the large ears of the elephant. I don't know what you guys are talking about, he says. It's flat and floppy like a pancake. And the fourth man laughs at them all, for he had found the tail. My brothers, don't be silly, he says. It's a snake. I can feel it moving in my hand. And so we're told God is like this elephant. And the blind men are like different religions or different uh, spiritual perspectives. They are each describing what they feel, but it doesn't capture the whole. Instead of their narrow view being the true, full description of who God is, it's only a partial understanding of a God who's being experienced by them all in different ways. Kind of cool story, hey? At first blush, it looks like a great those helpful little parables that show us how limited our perspectives are. And we do acknowledge the, limit, the limitations of our perspectives. This, this tells the story of how you know, no one person gets the whole picture. And in that, there's truth. That is, until you step back and ask the obvious question. Who is it that's telling us the story? Like, who's holding the camera? Who's the one that's standing back and noticing that the four blind men are actually describing the same thing? Because that person actually claims to see the whole picture. They claim to know what no one else knows. They claim to have, again, a superior vantage point where they can kind of decide, oh, look at that. Everyone is actually touching the same reality. We know what it is. We know what everyone else is blind and confused about. And so a story that is meant to point, I think, to humility, and I appreciate that, is actually itself an incredibly arrogant and disrespectful story. It claims to know the real truth that everyone else is ignorant of, that everyone else refuses to acknowledge. In an attempt, good attempt, I think, to be inclusive and be respectful of all beliefs, we're told that all these different religions and all these different perspectives really all teach the same thing about God, or they all pointing to the same God, and that really if you follow one practice or you follow another practice, as long as you're sincere, if you just have this set of beliefs or that set of beliefs, it doesn't really matter in the end because it all is about the same thing, the same God. The problem is, when you dig in a little bit, you realize that just isn't true. I mean, every time I hear someone say, innocently or otherwise, that all religions are the same, my inside voice wants to scream out. I want to blurt out. I don't do this very often. I'm typically, you know, try to mind my manners. But I want to blurt out, really? Honestly, do you think they're all the same? Do you think they're teaching all the same thing? Because if you think all the religions are teaching the same thing, ultimately, then i got to say, I don't think you've been paying attention. Because some religions demanded, like, child sacrifice. That seems wrong to everyone. There were groups in history that required the sacrifice of a human every single morning. They'd open the chest cavity of some poor guy to determine whether the sun was going to come up that day or not. We've seen cults brainwash people, even to the point of committing suicide. Some religions teach that God is personal, but he doesn't care about you. Others teach 
that God is not a person at all, just a force. He really doesn't care about you. One religion demands perfection. Another offers grace and forgiveness. Some teach the inherent value of each and every person. And others teach that certain people are of lesser value. Are these really all the same? Are they all teaching the same pathway? Are they all pointing to the same God? Saying that all religions are equal or teach the same thing can sound palatable, popular. But I think to really say that is to practice willful ignorance. I don't mean that harshly. I just mean we've got to dig in more deeply. Because that's only true if we've ignored what people have said about the religions that they're part of themselves. Like the things that they describe about their beliefs. You have to ignore that to suggest that all religions teach the same thing. It can only happen if we've sort of sentimentalized people's beliefs and we've kind of scraped away all the weird stuff. And there's plenty of that to go around. We've scraped that away to make some palatable form of what Mark Clark, pastor on the coast, calls Western nicety. We've kind of made this blob called religion, which ends up getting caught in the same trap they've been trying to avoid. There's an attempt to be inclusive. There's an attempt to be respectful. And I I honor that. But they get caught. As Mark says in The Problem of God, a book he recently wrote, he said, they're happy to argue that all worldviews should be accepted as true. The reality is that stance is exclusivist itself for two reasons. First, in trying to be inclusive, ironically, the view ends up excluding the exclusivist. In other words, everyone can join except the people who think that there's only one way. They're not allowed. They're out. Oops. And second, its premise is exclusivist because it says, I have a particular, exclusive, true, right way of thinking, and I might add, very Western way of thinking, right way of thinking about all religions, namely, that they're all true. That itself is an exclusivist perspective. If you want to be humble and want to be respectful, and I think we do, there's a better way to do that than just to kind of whitewash, ignore, paint all these religions with the same sentimental brush and ignore what they really believe, ignore what they really say. Instead, I think we can lean in to discover differences while at the same time growing in friendship with people who think and believe and practice a faith that is different than us. Be that people of no faith, be that people of variety of religious faiths. We can even defend strongly their right to believe different things. We can speak up on their behalf. Just because we believe they have the right to believe something doesn't mean we think that what they believe is correct. Mark Clark goes on to say, it's more rational and respectful to say that one religion is true than to say that all religions are true. And I know I've found that out in my conversations with people of other faiths. So what do we do? Well, I want to move to some practical application to to kind of spark our thinking and how we would have conversations with others who maybe struggle with this obstacle. But I want to I draw something out here at first because I think as we have these kinds of conversations with people, uh, especially maybe people who um, believe that all religions are, are, are equally true, but also those who maybe would argue that all religions are equally false, I want to try to get under it for a moment and just point out what I think some of the heart and desire is under there because I think there's something there for us to learn. Like as we have conversations with others, I think we find out that some of what is being said in these conversations, people haven't necessarily thought through all their views. That's fair. We often haven't thought through a lot of our views. 
But what they're pushing back against are some things that I think we need to pay attention to. I actually think they're teaching us out out of their maybe pushback or their ideas some of the things that um, can instruct us in our conversation. So these are some of the things that I think come out of this. The first one is, don't be arrogant about your own faith. I think sometimes we get pushback from people because they've run into people who have such a strong belief that it comes across brash, arrogant. It ends up being something that is lorded over them, like they're stupid or dumb for believing differently than, than you and I do, for example. And I think as a result of that feeling, or ugh, you know, that sometimes people can be adopting a view that says, oh, all religions are basically the same, because they don't want that. I think we can take a clue from that for us. As we are in conversations with others, we don't need to be arrogant. We can be humble and confident in who Jesus is and engage in a conversation like that. Second, we don't need to ridicule people. We shouldn't ridicule people for what they believe, especially when they believe things quite different than us. Not only should we not ridicule people to their face, but we're so Canadian, we probably don't do that very often. We shouldn't ridicule people of other, what people believe to others when they're not present there. Instead, we should show interest in what people believe. We should be gentle in our inquiries. I think that this is not only the heart of Jesus, but I think it's actually the practical way forward with people. If we are willing to ridicule what people believe, I think that will shut down conversation about what people believe. People will be afraid to bring it up because they might be afraid of ridicule or be afraid of what you'll say about them in another context. Another one, it's related to that, but, and that is to not be disrespectful toward other ethnicities or other religions. It's easy to do that. In our day and age in particular, it's very easy to do that about Islam. I don't think we need to be disrespectful about other ethnicities or other religions. I don't believe that Jesus models that for us. We can be honest and true about it. I'll talk about that in a minute. But we don't need to be disrespectful. And I think that sometimes when we hear the pushback or in the conversations, people desire to, let's say it's all the same and there's many diverse paths and that's okay. It comes out of this desire to be respectful, to be open to others. And we want to applaud that and demonstrate that in our lives. The fact is there's truth and beauty and goodness in many people's lives of many diverse faiths. There's even truth, truth and beauty and goodness, I believe, in other religions. We can acknowledge that. C.S. Lewis himself, one of our greatest writers, said this. Listen to this carefully. He said, if you are a Christian, you do not have to believe that all other religions are simply wrong all through. If you are an atheist, you do have to believe that the main point of all the religions of the whole world is simply one huge mistake. If you're a Christian, you're free to think that all these religions, even the queerest ones, contain at least some hint of the truth. When I was an atheist, I had to try to persuade myself that most of the human race have always been wrong about the question that mattered to them most. When I became a Christian, I love this, I was able to take a more liberal view. But, of course, being a Christian does not mean thinking. Where Sorry. But, of course, Being a Christian does mean thinking that where Christianity differs from other religions, Christianity is right, they're wrong. As in arithmetic, there's only one right answer to a sum, and all other answers are wrong. But some, listen to this, some of the wrong answers are much nearer being right than others. End quote. We don't have to be disrespectful. And related to that, of course, 
Number four, we don't need to misrepresent others in what they believe. I think we're often tempted to make an opposing view of any kind, political, religious, whatever. We're we're, we're tempted to misrepresent what people believe or say, to make them look worse than they are, to kind of demonize the enemy, knock them down, because it's real easy when you can misrepresent someone. We don't need to do that. In fact, I would argue that we can represent other views well, be able to articulate them and, and share, this is actually what they believe. This is actually why they practice what they do. This is why my Buddhist friends have this belief and philosophy. This is why my Sikh friends practice this in their lives. This is why my Muslim friends pray this way. To represent it well and honestly. We do not need to misrepresent. In fact, we will be much further ahead in helping people get around an obstacle of faith and find Jesus if we will honestly represent in truth what others believe. And fifth, related to that, We shouldn't be ignorant about our own faith. I think sometimes when people have said all religions are the same, they genuinely haven't heard someone articulate exactly why do you believe what you believe. Like, in the face of everything we've talked about, how is it that you actually believe Jesus is unique, that Jesus should be met, that that, that Jesus can be explored, and, and that you won't regret doing it? But let's be honest, for some of us at least, that can really challenge us. We can get into those conversations and realize, whoa, we do not know how to speak about our faith. We are not completely sure why we believe Jesus is unique. Don't be ignorant about your faith. I think actually what's going on under this conversation with our friends and family is a desire to actually meet someone who really believes what they believe in a humble, confident, true way that, that, that is authentic and real with other people but is honestly expressing why they follow Jesus So I think these are genuine concerns that people have. And I think when we run into the popular conversations or the things they're said, like, oh, I think all paths or many paths lead to God or or we should, you know, we should just, you know, kind of let everyone do that. We want to be able to respect that. We want to be able to know what's being said, but then lean in to the conversation with respect, with gentleness. Remember, our theme for this whole series, Obstacles of Faith, is from 1 Peter 3, where it says that if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. So what are we explaining? Well, very simply, the good news that Jesus has come and that he is one of a kind. In his teaching, in his birth, in his life, in the way that he treated people, in the way that he revealed God, in what he said and what he did, ultimately revealed on the cross and through his resurrection, that he really is the one who has fully revealed God to us. And if you come to know him, you come to know God. In many ways, we're not claiming to have the truth as though we possess it or that we've discovered it for ourselves. Truth isn't an ideology or a principle or a thought or a religion. Truth is a person, a real living person. And we're claiming that God has revealed himself in that one person. That that unique, particular person is the way, the truth, and the life in a way that no one else is. We aren't pointing to ourselves. We're pointing to Jesus. Everything comes down to him. And that's the goal of our series. It's the goal of these conversations. Is that we'll just be able to have enough of a conversation, maybe shed a bit of light, 
maybe ask some good questions, but all the while help people get around these obstacles so they can meet Jesus. Very quickly, let me offer some practical application for our conversations. I know what I just rattled off, the don'ts kind of can sound like that, and I guess it probably is. I should have thought that one through, but here we go. A little more practical application. The first one is be a person that's willing to learn more about other religions, particularly if you've got a friend or a neighbor who believes and practices that particular religion. I encourage you to lean into that. I encourage you to discover more about who they are and what they believe and why they believe what they do. The truth is, if it's someone who has come from another culture to Canada, they haven't bought in, most of them at least, have not bought into this westernized nicety that kind of makes all religions a bland, amorphous blob. They actually believe that what they practice is right and true and, quite frankly, aren't that offended that you think the same about your faith. I mean, I enjoy terrific conversations with my Muslim friends for whom I can say gently and with all the love in the world, you're wrong. And they say gently and with love, no, you are wrong. And then we enjoy another hour of coffee and conversation. We can foster relationships with people of other religions and we can learn to, listen to this, appreciate and differentiate between what we believe and what they believe. So I encourage you to learn about other religions. Get a book out of the library. Read about it. Discover more, particularly in the context of friendship with someone who practices that faith. If you're in conversation with people who have a a more generic view about religions, that they themselves maybe don't practice a particular faith, I encourage you to talk more openly about these areas where you appreciate and differentiate, about areas of agreement and disagreement. I think it will surprise people when you show and express agreement with someone of another faith on something, but then also talk about, and you know what? We believe very different things about who Jesus is. Very different. I think they'll be maybe a bit surprised when you speak in a respectful tone where you don't build this straw man up that you can kick down so easily and demonize the enemy when you speak openly and honestly the truth about another faith. We can demonstrate fairness. We can show respect. I think we we can lead the way in having a better conversation about the differences when we do that with gentleness and with respect. And number three, do deepen your own understanding of who Jesus is. Some of you have been following Jesus a long time, but you could do with a refresher on how exactly you can express to others why you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Some of you are just exploring who Jesus is, and I encourage you to deepen that understanding, to find out how is it that we believe, that Christians believe, that Jesus is truly unique. Why is that true? Why would they dare claim that? Deepen your understanding of how Jesus is different, because when you compare all the religions and philosophies of the world, Every single one of them comes down to the question, what do they think about Jesus? And then fourth, I encourage you to share that. You know, all these things we talked about today, I realize could sound like a big philosophical argument. I realize that. But when it comes right down to it, you know, the most powerful argument you can make is to share your story of how Jesus has changed your life. Is to share your story of how you've come to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. Not sort of philosophically or just, just as an idea, but like a life-transforming person that you follow that's a powerful argument it's hard to dispute so i encourage you to share that and then fifth expanding on uh, uh, the insert that's in your bulletin i encourage you to look for an opportunity maybe with someone of another religion 
but someone who you've been discussing these things with, to eat together over a meal, to share together in friendship. We've been highlighting this blessed um, program, I guess you could say, that in, in, on the insert in your bulletin, we are in the third of, of, of five weeks, where the, the BLESS acronym stands for Begin with Prayer, Listen with Care, Eat Together, uh, Serve in Love, and Share Your Story. And, uh, and so we've been encouraging you to, to take each week uh, a next step in this intentional missional practice. First, identifying who you want to regularly pray for, and then leaning into their lives to listen with care. And the next step is to eat together. And, and, and we're encouraging you to take that list of names, that few three to five names that you've been praying for, and look for an opportunity to invite them to have a meal with you. Maybe at a restaurant, maybe at your own home. Maybe it's just coffee and dessert, but don't get hung up on that. But an opportunity to meet together over a meal. I highlighted here as a general practice for all of us, but also the power. I want to I lean back on, on something there uh, with, with people who are of another specific religion. I got to tell you, in my experiences with people of other religions, particularly if they've come in from other countries, if they're immigrants, the power of being invited to your house for a meal cannot be overestimated. It's so powerful. I've told you before about our good friends, our Iranian friends in Calgary. Um, I met on an airplane, and he's filled with jokes on that. Okay. So we met on an airplane, and by the end of the airplane, invited him for supper. And uh, first of all, the shock in them of being invited out for supper by uh, uh, a local. And um, that started a friendship that has, that has gone on now for many, many years. And uh, they've been here to visit, and some of you have met them. Um, and the, the eating together over a meal was really what not only transformed our relationship, but it's, it's brought our relationship through the years. And so I just want to challenge you to take that to heart. Eating together with friends, eating together with neighbors is a powerful way of showing the love of Jesus as we extend friendship to each other.